Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host, Chris Caraggio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Caraggio. Today, we have a special episode for you that revisits some of the great conversations we have had this year, which will continue of course, at the upcoming Congress on Healthcare Leadership in March. Now, today's episode is brought to you by Elsevier. As misinformation multiplies, giving your clinicians easy access to the most trusted current evidence-based information is more important now than ever. Elsevier's Clinical Key can indeed help. Download the executive brief at trustclinicalkey.com. So suffice it to say, it has certainly been quite a year. The COVID-19 pandemic, of course, changed our lives in ways we could have never imagined. Our first 2020 highlight is from our podcast with Warner Thomas, F-A-C-H-E, the CEO of Oshner Health in Louisiana. Um, Now, when this first aired back in May, the system was just past the peak of the first wave. They had treated about 60% of the patients in New Orleans and 35 to 40% of the total patients in the state. Warner shared the system's approach and which key leadership skills were helping Oshner Health successfully treat patients and the community. You know, we started watching this closely from at Oshner, you know, back when uh, we saw the escalation in Wuhan and as it hit the, the northwest area in, in Seattle and the Washington area. And we had started planning, you know, several months ago, thinking about how would we deal with uh, you know, COVID patients, how would we deal with, you know, PPE? Um, and, and once again, there's no COVID-19 playbook. Nobody can go to the bookshelf and pull it off and say, okay, these are the things to do. So I think our focus on being, you know, we hear a lot about agility, but I, I think this idea of adjusting and adapting to the environment and what's happening is critical to success in, in any situation, but certainly, in this situation of having a pandemic, I think we've been able to respond appropriately because we prepared, but also we adjusted and adapted as the situation you know, warranted. So I think, and I got asked this a lot in Hurricane Katrina because we went through Hurricane Katrina and did, we were one of three hospitals that stayed open and took care of you know, thousands and thousands of patients when the healthcare system was, was really significantly impaired in the New Orleans area. And as I told folks then, and I, and to me, it's the same situation now is this planning starts years ago by building a good team and by investing in your team and having people that are, um, you know, well prepared, that are confident, that have good skills, that work together as a team and, and are people that can make good decisions and do that in challenging times. And, you know, you find that, you know, uh, very good leaders do extremely well in these types of situations. They flourish and they make good decisions and they do a great job leading their team. And those that are more marginal, I think, are challenged and, and have more difficulty. So this all starts with building a great team, quite frankly. More than a dozen hospital and health system C-suite leaders are scheduled to join us at the 2021 Congress in March to share their frontline experiences and strategies to help us move forward together. Register today at ache.org Congress. Now, next up is Denise 
Brooks Williams, F-A-C-H-E, Senior Vice President and CEO of the North Market at Henry Ford Health System. Now, Denise is in Michigan, where African Americans make up about 14% of the population, but account for 40% of the virus deaths. Now, in response to this incredible racial gap in outcomes, Governor Gretchen Whitmer appointed Denise to the State of Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities and chose Denise as one of the members. Now, here, Denise discusses some of the first hurdles the task force tackled. We decided, first and foremost, we would have to be a task force that took action. You know, a lot of times groups like this come together to study an issue and a problem and produce a report and then there would be implementation. Immediately, we challenged um, ourselves and were challenged by our Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist to act. So the first thing we did was test and test and test and test because one of the barriers that we knew existed in the community was testing. Many facilities could only initially start by testing first responders. And unfortunately, what that did was allow people to be ill, perhaps not know they were, and have the virus spread. So testing was a key first component. Um, And right now, we have the capacity to do up to 15 to 20,000 tests a week, which at that time, you know, of course we didn't, but we built up to that. So that was the first piece. The other part, though, was transparency and data and information. What you might be surprised to find if you were talking to executives across the country is that not everybody reported their data along racial and ethnic lines. So it was not always as easy to find out exactly, you know, who was afflicted and certainly more importantly, where the mortality was really happening. So that's another piece of the work that we're doing and the task force is still working um, and will continue to work throughout the summer. And so another piece is really trying to understand who was treated and what those outcomes were. Thank God they were not all deaths, but for those that um, did, where were they You know, treated within our healthcare systems and making sure that our data and information is transparent first and foremost, and then more importantly, studied so that we can try to understand what we would be able to do you know, after this current pandemic. And unfortunately, if there is a second wave. One other piece of work that I'll call out because there are several initiatives, but another really important one is around provider connections. And so we've really spent time trying to assess and understand if you already have, as we know, the social determinants of care that plague people really from a social economic perspective and African-Americans, sadly, in particular in our state, what are some of the things that would help? So one thing that we know is if people are mentally and physically healthy when faced with something like a COVID virus, their outcomes, you know, certainly would be better. And we know that one of the reasons that they are not at their healthiest state is they don't have providers. And so we have worked really vigilantly to figure out um, how to make those connections and make sure that people have a medical home. And in doing so, hopefully, you know, they'll have stable health. And if faced with anything in the future, hopefully they'll have better outcomes. Now, a little bit later in this interview, we asked Denise what advice and recommendations she has for other leaders looking to resolve racial and ethnic disparities in pandemic outcomes. And her advice will be so relevant as we move into the availability of a vaccine and the paradigm shifts again. Take a listen. Collaborating 
what we've done a lot in that Southeast Michigan footprint that I described with you is collaborate with our community organizations who proved invaluable during that time because for some people that's where they were oriented to go for care. So when we talk about the social determinants and we talk about the vulnerability in our community, we have organizations, of course, like the United Way that provided grants during that time for homeless um, populations. We worked with Neighborhood Services Organization, which is a behavioral health entity that's in the area to help us with outreach both for the community and for staff. And the other thing I would suggest, quite honestly, is if it's a colleague that in their particular area has a lot of vulnerabilities, but also have the data to understand that they have communities that are adversely impact over, you know, whatever data you would expect, form a task force. One of the most valuable things that we've seen of, of late is the fact that our task force is not just healthcare. So it does have education representation. It has um, banking representation. So it is really a combination of trying to look at how do we have a community that is prepared and working together to be able to face a crisis. So I think that would be my last suggestion is really create an interdisciplinary group to be able to partner on whatever the outcomes are. In addition to some of the disparities in health outcomes we've seen, another major challenge is mental health during the pandemic. Now, before March of 2020, nearly one in five Americans had been diagnosed with a behavioral health disorder, and we've seen global rates of anxiety and depression increasing steadily over the last decade. Measures like social distancing or working and schooling from home while necessary have in many cases added to these numbers. Dr. John Boyd, F-A-C-H-E, the CEO of System Mental Health and Addiction Care Services at Sutter Health in California, joined us this summer to discuss some of the most pressing concerns around mental health during the pandemic and how Sutter Health is reaching out to ensure patients get the care they need right now. In terms of what Sutter Health is doing, you know, throughout COVID, uh, as just one example, and, and what we'll continue to do include things like telehealth. I've referenced that briefly, but really telehealth is where you're able to deliver telepsychiatry in emergency rooms or telemental health services in emergency rooms and ambulatory care settings that allow people to continue to, to access the mental health support that we know can be life-saving and that they continue to count on. So we have expanded our, our area of expertise and that has proven to be tremendously successful from the patient's perspective and the utilization of that modality has been, has been significant. Ensuring that we continue to integrate mental health into primary care uh, is going to be important for all of us. You know, when an individual, for instance, uh, during COVID goes to their primary care provider, and, and we know that we're living in a time where there are increased mental health and addiction stressors, all of us need to be screened appropriately in those environments and linked to the right level of care. So we continue to expand our commitment to mental health and, and primary care as a key access point for people always, but especially during times like COVID, when there may be more limited access to uh, other healthcare providers. So those are, are just a few things that we've been seeing and a few things that we've been doing at Sutter Health to help support the mental health and addiction care needs of the communities that we serve. 
Now, caring for patients with behavioral health conditions is crucial. And equally important right now is the mental health of the teams of people providing that care. John also outlined for us some of the great programs that Sutter Health has in place to help with workforce mental health. Take a listen. Caring for our, our employees and our teammates for some of our health systems equates to caring for the needs of a medium or large city, as an example. You know, and so by ensuring that we're reaching out and to our own workforce in that context and sharing evidence-based education and information as it relates to mental health and addiction care in practical ways that they can understand and apply to their own lives is essential. There's so much information out there uh, and it's difficult to sift through and understand what's accurate, what's not, what's evidence-based and what's not. And so we really try to make that an easy process for our employees and to try to provide them that information in a digestible way. And what we know is social connection in the workplace is essential to supporting everybody's mental health. You know, we know that oftentimes we're talking uh, and working with individuals, maybe sometimes more than our own families. So by building appropriate social connections, not only is that a protective factor for mental health and addiction care, uh, it's also a way in which you can know someone well enough to where if you see a shift in their behavior, you can have some some healthy conversations around what support they may need and what they might want. Yeah. And so fostering and fueling a, a culture of social connection has been key. The mental health of our patients and clinicians, as well as key healthcare workforce issues like burnout, resiliency, and staffing, will be on the agenda at the 2021 Congress on Healthcare Leadership. It's going to be held virtually March 22nd through the 25th, Registration is now open online at ache.org slash Congress. Now, today's highlights episode of the Healthcare Executive Podcast is brought to you by Elsevier. As misinformation multiplies, giving your clinicians easy access to the most trusted current evidence-based information is more important now than ever. Elsevier's Clinical Key can help. Download the executive brief at trustclinicalkey.com. Our next clip is from the very first podcast of the year with Indu Subaya. She's CEO and founder of Catalyst at Health 2.0. Indu will be the closing keynote speaker of 2021's Congress on Healthcare Leadership. This podcast aired before the pandemic, but many of the points Indu made about technology and innovation in healthcare wound up being really relevant. For instance, this exchange about the potential impact of telehealth and other advancements on rural healthcare. I do think that I do think the challenges are are very different. Um, I think that in some ways, uh, we have a problem of having the physical space, uh, which is a great thing. It's a great asset to actually have the capital infrastructure um, for physical hospital space. But we're often facing just a lack of number of people coming through the door. So, Ironically, you know, when you hear about trying to save money and trying to prevent, you know, ER admissions and keep folks out of the hospital, I think rural hospitals face the other challenge. It's like, you know, we don't have enough people coming in. And when they do come in, the reimbursement models are just not sufficient for us to keep our doors open. So I think they almost need a hybrid approach um, 
to when, when thinking about how to use health technologies. Um, if all of their technology were simply keeping people away, we, we wouldn't have a mechanism uh, to really treat patients in the facility and to, to get reimbursed and to, and to stay in business. So are there ways in which uh, we could use telemedicine? So still set up shop in the rural hospital with the facilities to do telemedicine. But when somebody exceeds the level of being able to be cared for in their home, they can come in. Can we use partnerships with transportation companies, uh, which are now, there are digital health companies that will coordinate transportation, um, all on the same sort of electronic dashboard. Um, Can we build connections from the rural hospital with all of the social service providers in that county so that uh, maybe there's a way that the hospital can be a hub, not just for medical care, but for coordinating health, you know, services across a particular region. So I think there is some combination of telepresence and coordination with other services in the community that that rural hospitals can can really take advantage of. And I think in terms of the cost, uh, we are seeing now companies in the digital health sector going at risk and saying, you don't have to pay us up front if we save you money or if we help you um, hit a certain kind of financial goal, you'll pay us. We'll share that upside with you. And I think getting into those kind of uh, risk-bearing contracts with these technology partners might be another way to go. While, of course, nobody has a crystal ball, we know that healthcare organizations are working to embed innovation in their daily operations. This fall, we spoke to Roberta Schwartz. She's got a PhD. She's the Executive Vice President of the Chief Innovation Officer at Houston Methodist about how their culture of innovation that has been planted and tendered for many years helped the system better care for patients, their families, and their own staff during the pandemic. So I think, you know, the innovations that we had in place um, with partners that were pretty much already set with the technologies that we had identified were the ones that we turned to at the beginning of the COVID um, pandemic and really said, how can you help us um, to really work with our uh, families, our caregivers. And so, yes, it was really amazing to overnight be able to really, um, and I mean quickly, train over um, 900 of our physicians to utilize all of our virtual platforms and be able to see our patients at home. So during the first surge, we saw 80% of our um, physician visits at home. In addition to that, we saw physical therapy. Um, We got people home quicker so that we could kind of check in on them. So being able to kind of pivot on a dime happened because we already had all of the platforms that were available. Um, Our virtual ICU, we literally the week before um, the first patients hit Houston Methodist, we had finished wiring our main campus for all of our virtual ICU rooms. It was just beautiful. 
and now every one of our campuses is wired and, and done. So really that um, pivoting happened very quickly. We were able to turn our Care Pathways platform and actually make Care Pathways for our COVID patients. Um, we were able to turn on and utilize uh, TitoCare on people's phones as attachments to do um, some of the uh, wider virtual visits that we needed. And, and I could go on and on and on down the list of all of the different technologies that got utilized. Um, all of our um, rooms were outfitted with iPads and Alexa devices and uh, everything that was needed to keep people um, comfortable. And as you keep advertising, which is really amazing and wonderful, um, a lot of family visits couldn't happen. You know, and, and so you needed those family visits at Houston Methodist, at Kindred, at other places to be able to happen. And you had to have those technologies in place. And, and it really was um, amazing to be able to watch people embrace technologies that they may have been reticent to do, both on the consumer side and on the provider side, um, and now bring those into the mainstream. And of course, innovation, technology, and the advancement of patient care will be among the discussions at the virtual 2021 Congress on Healthcare Leadership. March 22nd through the 25th, those are the dates. Register is open now at ache.org slash Congress. Now, Congress will offer 12 face-to-face -face credit hours towards earning or recertifying your ACHE fellow credential. And while it will be virtual this year, the event will offer many opportunities to network and connect with all your colleagues as you've come to expect. Over the course of the year, we have asked all of our guests who are members and fellows how their experience with ACHE has helped them in their careers. You're going to hear now from Jim Kendrick, the CEO of Community Hospital Corporation, Raul Zambrano, He's an MD, Senior Medical Director at Oak Street Health in Indianapolis, and Denise Brooks-Williams, plus John Boyd from earlier in this episode. Let's hear what they have to say. You know, ACHE is uh, an amazing organization, and one of the things that people need to understand is the value of networking. Um, you know, many times today I'm working on projects and utilizing relationships that I've built over the last, you know, 25 years. And many of those were built through relationships through ACHE, working with other peers and professionals, going to conferences, learning about new things, new innovations, hearing about things. You know, we were talking about telemedicine 10 years ago at ACHE Congress in Chicago, uh, but watching it evolve, learning how other people have made it work. So the networking piece, uh, the continuing education piece, is a significant value. You know, if you're a physician, you take continuing education every year. Well, if you're in the healthcare executive role, you need that same type of continuing education. Fellowship, which is basically the board certification in healthcare administration, fills in a lot of those gaps, whether it's through the senior executive program or the Thomas Dolan program I went through. Um, they do a fantastic job of adding those components that small hospital systems may not be able to do. Um, second, the reality is once you get into the C-suite, the FACHE is the gold standard. You don't see very many of us in the C-suite without that certification. Third, the networking is unbelievable. And the reality is at this point, for the, thing, the things that I still don't know, it's always an email or phone call away from somebody who I have interacted with through ACHE. And so I think it's invaluable in any emerging leaders that I mentor, I recommend both ACHE and NASI 
to them as both networking opportunities, but also learning opportunities. During this time of the pandemic, I will say I reached out to my ACHE colleagues as well as my NASI colleagues, and we shared notes around what were people seeing and experiencing in their communities, and equally important, what solutions were they using, you know, that were helping them to advance the care of those that they serve. So to me, it's been an invaluable opportunity, not only to network, but to have lifelong colleagues and, you know, really thought partners, you know, so that in good times and in challenging times, I feel really comfortable that I can pick the phone up and call my colleagues. ACHEA distinguishes itself by creating this natural uh, community that comes with being a fellow where you have the freedom to reach out to individuals where you may not otherwise feel comfortable in reaching out to or know how to reach out to them. And they provide that platform. And that has been the case for me now for over 20 years of being a fellow. Um, And the impact, again, has been more meaningful work in the community, more meaningful career, because you have the leadership and mentoring to develop yourself and increase in terms of the types of positions that you take and the challenges of some of those positions. And then I'll just end with the incredible quality of education and information that that gets disseminated by ACHE that left to one's own devices you may may never learn or have, or if you tried, would take multiple, multiple hours to try to secure. Well, there you have it, everybody. Jim and Denise and Raul and John have summed it up for us. The connections that you're going to make with your colleagues through ACHE and at the Congress for Healthcare Leadership this March will last throughout your career. Registration for the 2021 Virtual Congress on Healthcare Leadership is open now. Visit ache.org congress for more information. And be sure to register before February 22nd to get that early bird rate. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this Healthcare Executive Podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Elsevier. As misinformation multiplies, giving your clinicians easy access to the most trusted, current, evidence-based information is more important now than ever. Elsevier's Clinical Key can help. Download the executive brief at trustclinicalkey.com. We'll see you all in 2021. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ache.org. Dot org.